One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Please note this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, Edwina meets Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Prisons, Peter Clark. The Chief Inspector provides independent scrutiny of detention in England, Wales and Northern Ireland through turning up sometimes unannounced to inspect prisons, young offenders institutions, police cells and immigration service detention centres. My name is Peter Clark. I'm the Chief Inspector of Prisons and have been since January 2016. So as we speak now, that's uh, coming up for four years. And when does your post end? Well, it should have finished last January, January uh, 2019. But uh, I was asked if I'd extend by a year, so I did, so I've stayed on for another year, and uh, my departure has been delayed a little longer by the fact of the general election, and that's got in the way of uh, selecting and appointing my successor, so I'll be there for a few more months yet to take me up to near enough four and a half years. And what is your sort of background? How did you end up as the Chief Inspector of Prisons? What's been the trajectory? Well, that's a very good question, but uh, throughout my working life, which is near enough 42 years now, uh, I've always been involved in one way or the other with criminal justice. I, um, I read law at university, then I joined the police for over 30 years. And since I retired from the police, I've been involved with uh, what was the senior, uh, Serious Organised Crime Agency. I was on the board there. Um, uh, had a role as well with um, Charity Commission, which isn't criminal justice, but it's a similar sort of thing of establishing facts uh, and coming to judgments. And so when the opportunity uh, presented itself to apply for this role, it struck me that actually it, it, it's another version of what I've been doing for the last 40 odd years, establishing facts, coming to judgments based upon evidence rather than assertion, uh, and then uh, reporting on them, and reporting on them in, a, in a, what I hope is a completely independent, objective way. We have listeners who work in the justice system and they know exactly about you know what the chief inspector does and the importance of it. For But for those people who are listening who literally have no idea <laughs> what it is you do, what is the role of the chief inspector? What staff do you have? What's the point of view? Why do you exist? What, what's the point of the chief inspector? I think it's just a hugely important role. Uh, there are all the cliches about how important it is that uh, people who uh, fall foul of the law or commit serious offences are treated properly. I happen to think that's vastly important because, I, to my mind, there's an overriding public interest in people emerging from jail uh, in a condition which is less likely uh, for them to create further victims of crime. So if they're going to emerge from jail um, embittered, angry, possibly more violent, possibly more full of drugs, um, uh, more embittered against the world in which they find themselves than when they went in, I think uh, that is a massive failure. 
failure of policy. Uh, and so I'm not a campaigner. It's not my role at all. Um, but it is to report objectively on what's there because I think there is this overriding public interest in giving people the opportunity, should they wish to take it, to turn their lives around and come out and be fully contributing members of the community um, rather than creating more victims. So being the chief inspector, um, you're in charge of a group of inspectors that work across women's prisons, men's prisons, children's prisons. Can you carry on the list? Yes, we're a very small organisation. There's about 70 of us in total, and that includes teams of inspectors who actually go out in the field and do the inspecting. Uh, and then we have um, editorial colleagues. We have obviously a small secretariat, uh, and we have a research team who are a vital part of our work who conduct surveys uh, in prisons before the inspection teams actually arrive. Um, what we inspect is, yes, um, all prisons in England and Wales, 130 or so. That includes, obviously, women's prisons, open prisons. Private prisons? Private prisons as well. Immigration detention in all its different forms. Right. Uh, we jointly with our colleagues from Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, uh, uh, Fire and Rescue Services, uh, inspect police custody. And we also, the invitation of the Ministry of Defence, inspect military custody. Okay. So we do it's a lot. Quite, There's only yeah, 70 of us. wider reaching than I had Yeah, first it, so it's a very busy uh, little organisation. And as the chief... Uh, yes, what is my role? It, it's Yes, I'm accountable for the uh, running of the organisation itself. We spend public money, uh, and so obviously I'm accountable for that. I have to um, quite properly um, explain what I've spent us very small budget on. What is your budget? Am I allowed to ask? Yes, no, it's in, in total, it's, it's around about £4 million per year. Mm. Yeah, and that covers everything we do. But I think uh, it's very important as well that both I and the Deputy Chief Inspector, we spend a lot of time on the road in jails. So almost every week, either one of us or both are out joining inspection teams, actually seeing for ourselves, carrying keys, going around jails, speaking to prisoners, speaking to governors and their teams, and then working with our inspection teams uh, to come to the judgments based upon the evidence that they've gathered during the full course of the inspection. And how long might an inspection take? Typically, a full inspection will cover two weeks. The okay. first week is when the research team go in and um, distribute surveys, and so we, we get the prisoner voice that way. Um, and that is analysed uh, and then it helps inform the second week of the inspection, which is when all the inspectors turn up. So How many? There could be, including our colleagues from Ofsted and the Care Quality Commission, uh, it can be as many as 15, some okay. 15 people. Right. So it's fairly intensive, not only for us, yeah. but also for the prison that's being inspected. Yeah, because I presume all those people are crawling into sort of every sort of part of the prison and, you know, well, wanting I hope to uncover everything. I hope they're crawling in every part of the prison. That's why we're there. Right. And it's an important fact. We do carry keys so we can go exactly where we like. And uh, that, that's an important part of our independence. And then at the end of that two weeks, a report is written and then published. What happens right? at the end of that two weeks is that the whole inspection team sits down and we have what we call a deliberation meeting where all the evidence that's being gathered is put on the table and I join that meeting. Uh, and as, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners will know, we inspect against what we call our healthy prison tests. which is So we're not looking for whether the prison is compliant with internal policy. 
we inspect against what we call our expectations, which are based upon international human rights standards. So that gives us another element of independence. So we sit down and we come to our judgments based upon the evidence that's being gathered. And my role is to sit there and very often to challenge the team and say, well, why do you say this or why do you say that? What's the evidence for that? Uh, And so it, it goes back to what you mentioned earlier. My background is about trying to establish facts based upon sustainable evidence. Mm. And this is no different from anything really that I've done in the last 40 odd years. Right. And so so the inspectors, you say, are independent. So independent from the Ministry of Justice, independent from HMPPS, Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. It's not political. It's not a political appointment. In fact, you're appointed by the Queen. Yes, that's right. I'm what's known as a Crown appointment. So obviously i selected in the normal sort of public appointments way. Uh, um, These appointments are made, I think there are eight stages to my selection, which is a a variety of uh, exercises and um, interviews. No, not that that sort of exercise, (laughs) thank goodness. Um, Media testing and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, And and, um, eventually it ended up with an interview with the Secretary of State, who then makes a recommendation to Downing Street. Downing Street make a recommendation to the palace. Uh, and then the, the, the Queen agrees or otherwise, and thankfully she agreed. And so you must have looked at this job, and, you know, prisons are, um, understatement of the year, um, they're challenging places. What on earth made you sort of think, this is a really interesting role? You know, I'm sure you came into the role wanting to make a difference. Um, so what made you think, I want to do this, and what did you think that you could bring to the table? Well, I, I suppose I'm at a stage of life where actually... Um, I can afford to be independent and say what I think when I want in, in exactly the way I want to to, to do so. Uh, and that, I think, is a key part of independence. Uh, and, and being able to say publicly, not worried at all about the reaction that it will um, generate either from politicians or from the bodies we're inspecting, I think that's hugely important. I think there's a massive public interest in being able to chuck a light on what's going on behind what are obviously closed in- institutions. I, mean, I knew a bit about prisons before I came into this. I'd spent 30-odd years trying to, in one way or the other, put people into them. Mm. But I'd never really gone right into the depths of prisons. You know, I've been to the bits where you interview prisoners or have legal visits or restore property and all that sort of thing, but not really deep into the residential side or to the workshops uh, and so on. So it's been interesting. It's been very revealing uh, and it's been challenging, but I hope it's also been a very important role in terms of bringing to light as much as we possibly can what actually does happen in prisons. Considering you came to this role with quite a bit of knowledge, as you say, of the criminal justice system through the police and sort of um, various different things, were you horrified and prepared for some of the things that you have witnessed? Perhaps I'm a bit long in the tooth to be horrified by things anymore. I've probably seen too much in my life, but I was surprised and disappointed uh, at some of the things that I've seen, and particularly when those things uh, are avoidable. Uh, mm-hmm. If there's a lack of care, for mm. instance, um, there's no excuse for that. Whatever the resource shortfalls might be, and we know the prisons have been through a really difficult time, far too many staff taken out of the system a few years ago, um, you know, a total lack of investment in, in, in the fabric and so on and so forth. But that doesn't explain the variations in standards that we see between places which should be broadly comparable. And when, when I look at that, 
and ask myself, why is prison X so different from prison Y when it should be very similar? Usually it comes down to the quality of the leadership, the quality of the senior team, and whether they're prepared to innovate, be imaginative, and actually demonstrate that level of care which should always be there. You may remember a few months ago we um, issued what's called an urgent notification in respect of Bristol Prison. Mm, and, And just quickly for our listeners, the urgent notification requirement is really a sort of well, you can explain it better than me, but when a prison is not doing well at all, and it's almost like they're sort of hitting the alarm button, isn't it? It is, and it all goes back to um, uh, well, about f- four secretaries of state ago, um, oh. when there was a, going to be a prison and courts bill uh, in uh, 2017, um, which included a provision for if I had serious concerns about the treatment and conditions in a particular jail, I could write to the Secretary of State uh, and that would be a public document and he or she would have to respond within 28 days saying what they're going to do about it. That was lost uh, because of the election that was called in 2017, that bill. Um, But the uh, Secretary of State after that election, uh, David Liddington, said that he wanted to try to achieve through administrative means as much as uh, he could uh, th- that had been lost in the bill. So he agreed that this a so-called urgent notification process should be implemented, and it was in November 2017. And it's been hugely important. It's brought a level of public accountability to this and political accountability. And that level of accountability simply wasn't there in the past. It is now, and it has made a huge difference. Do you feel like you have the power that you need in order to do your job effectively? I don't necessarily want power because power is what a regulator has and a regulator can uh, demand compliance with policy. That's not my role. Our job is to inspect. We don't have any powers at all. We don't even exist in statute. I exist by (laughs) law, but the inspectorate doesn't. The bill which was lost in 2017 was for the first time going to put the inspectorate on a statutory footing, uh, but that was lost. And so we still don't exist in law. Does it look like that might come back? And do you think it's important that that does come back and that actually your team does exist? Well, it's, it's difficult to say because, you know, we all know there's been a lot of or lack of political stability. In the last four years, I've worked with five secretaries of state and five prisons ministers. Um, not helpful. May, not helpful. Maybe in the future, if we can get some stability back and there's time found uh, in the legislative program, um, it would be a good thing, I think, to, to regularise some of this. But, uh, but to go back to your question, I'm not looking for power. What I'm looking for uh, is for those who run prisons to respond to our findings uh, and our recommendations in a constructive and responsible way. What I do find far too often is defensiveness. Mm. And that uh, is inexcusable, I think, in an organisation that is so important as the prison service. So to go back, actually, to the report, so the inspectors, you've all sort of sat down, you're sitting down discussing uh, Prison A, which is in a terrible state, and you write the report, and there's some recommendations that you make that go to whom? It depends what the recommendation is, but ultimately it's all for the Secretary of State. But we make recommendations, some of which are directed at the Governor, of the particular uh, prison. Some are directed at uh, HMPPS, at the prison service, if it's a matter of policy or something over which they can have influence if it involves perhaps significant movement of resources. 
And on occasions, particularly when we're doing a thematic inspection, which is not about a particular establishment, but about a broader subject, occasionally we'll make recommendations uh, directly to the Secretary of State. So it all depends on, on what it is we think should happen and who's got the power to make that happen as to okay. who we direct the recommendation at. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor. So in the last sort of two decades that I've worked in prisons, just to play devil's advocate and, you know, I um, know David Ramsbottom and, of course, he was the chief inspector of prisons. So um, I watched from a young age as a criminology student and sort of studying this world and now working in it. I have seen, as I'm sure you have, report after report after report often being ignored. Um, we have not seen prisons get better over the last, um, certainly the last five to 10 years, so they've got exponentially worse. So do your reports largely go ignored? They don't. They're, they're not taken as seriously all the time as they should be. There's no doubt about that. And for the last three annual reports, I've, I've made the point that fewer of our recommendations are achieved than are not achieved. And that's been a widening gap in the past few years. Uh, I'm a hopeless optimist, and I think that will change. I hope it will change. I think the combination of the urgent notification process and a new follow-up process, which we've been imp implemented this year, the so-called independent reviews of progress, the combination of those things will help. And I hope there's a new strategy now, which has just been um, published by the prison service and one of the objectives it says on there is to, is to generate an open learning culture. I'd welcome that. I hope it's true because I have to be completely frank and say that very often the culture I see in some parts of the prison service reminds me of the police service I joined in the 1970s. Very defensive, very introspective, very resistant to external scrutiny and running on process as opposed to outcomes. So if you tick the boxes, uh, fill up the forms properly, 
uh, and in prisons there are forms. I've never seen so much paper since since the 1980s right. as I do in prisons. So long as you tick those boxes, you won't get into trouble. That's not how, in my view, a modern organisation should run. It should be much more flexible, open, full of innovation, and actually think about what is it we're trying to achieve. It's not to survive the day without getting into trouble. It's to, in my view, it should be about helping the people whose care and it is care. Yes, people have to be held securely and all the rest of it, but they are in the care of the state. And uh, I think that should never be forgotten. You know, to me, I sort of always say, we've put a man on the moon, for goodness sake. You know, this stuff isn't rocket science. And we know often what it is we need to do, but often we can't find the person to do what it is we need done. So take paperwork, for example. You know, just to streamline the paperwork and to try and make things a bit more efficient. Whose job sort of is it to do that? Would that sit with the Ministry of Justice? I mean, is this stuff really that hard? Uh, well, it shouldn't be that hard. Um, every other business and, and seems to manage. Um, so it shouldn't be that hard. But you know, if you go into a wing office uh, on the average prison, it's just a pile of box files yeah. and ring files and bits of paper, some floating around loose, some pinned on the wall, bits of sellotape everywhere, all of that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. That's not how it should be. Uh, and, 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 and I know that uh, Jo Farrow, the chief executive of the prison service, she's very conscious of this and wants to do something about it. Obviously, it will need uh, some funding uh, and some innovation, but it must happen. Mm, it's got it to, must. You've got to f free up the time of the staff that are there so that they can be doing the things they ought to be doing and not filling up endless reams of paper. Absolutely. And certainly in a day and age where we've seen such dramatic cuts to the officers, and yes, the numbers are growing, but I'd argue that maybe they aren't mature, well-trained staff. You know, they're very young. The training isn't good enough and it's not long enough. Um, and we're still not back up to the levels um, that we should be at. So to then have all that paperwork on top of it. Um, but I also want to move on to the different estates that you inspect, because there are, in my simplistic mind, the three estates, men, women and children. Is that the way you sort of organise it in your head or do you sort of see it differently? I, I'd probably break it down a little further than that. Yes, mm -hmm. men, women and children obviously, but then there are subsets. There's the high security estate, there's the open estate, there's the training estate, there's the local prisons. And so there are all sorts of variations on a theme within that. But yes, men, women and children is a good starting point. And I would like to touch upon, um, first of all, some of the worst things that you've seen, um, if we may. Um, we will also talk about some of the best things that you've seen, because of course, within this world, um, there's the good, the bad and the ugly. And, and, yes. and there's so much good that goes on. So we will come to the good. Um, but what are the more sort of horrifying things that you've seen, if I may ask? I'm, I'm glad we'll come to the good because inevitably, I suppose, uh, there's a lot of focus given to our reports which point out less good things mm. uh, and, and, and a lot of the complimentary things we say about uh, prisons gets lost. Mm. And it's a shame because I, I do say to governors and their teams all the time, I want inspection as far as possible to be a supportive, constructive process uh, and, and not a, a blame thing isn't it? You know, it shouldn't be about that so we'll, I hope we'll come to some of the good things I've Absolutely. seen some of the ghastly things I've seen where there's been a lack of care and it's become uh, the norm so if we go back to let me think Liverpool in 2017 when we inspected there the place was filthy and I wrote about it at the time but I'll repeat it that my team pointed me towards a particular cell where they said there was a prisoner in some distress. So I went to that cell and I had a, a senior 
um, official from the Ministry of Justice with me. And in that cell, there was a, a man who was obviously uh, not well. He clearly had some significant mental health issues. Um, There's hardly any furniture in the cell. It was damp. The window was broken. His lavatory was broken, leaking. The sink was broken and leaking. The wires hanging down. Nothing was working. And I said to one of the senior staff who was there, how, how, how long has this gentleman been in here? They said, oh, a few weeks. He's got very complex needs. So I had to say, I'm hardly surprised the way he's being treated. And certainly my colleague from the Ministry of Justice, she was absolutely horrified and quite distressed by what she saw. Um, anyway, so I went down and I happened to find the prison group director who was in the jail at the time. And, and he sort of cheerily welcomed me and said, is everything going well? I said, well, no, it's not. And you know, for example, this is what I've just seen. My team have been pointing this out to your team all week throughout the inspection. Why has something not been done about this? And his reaction was? Well, within half an hour, the, the man was moved to a more suitable location, but it shouldn't have taken my personal intervention. Now, the good thing, and here's a bit of good news, mm. when I went back to Liverpool just a couple of months ago, uh, they said, oh, you might like to see Mr. So-and-so, who was that particular individual. He's now in the healthcare unit. He's being properly looked after in clean, decent surroundings. He's still not well but he's a heck of a lot better than he was then. And he's able to interact. And yeah, he's not I, in a freezing, leaking cell, which surely... Exactly. Can I ask, is it legal to hold people in those circumstances? Well, it's a very, very good question. I think there's a fundamental lack of accountability across a lot of issues, things that go on in our prisons. I'm particularly concerned about self-inflicted deaths, self-harm, the failure to implement the PPO recommendations. Last year in our annual report, I, I pointed out that in about a third of the men's prisons that we inspect, uh, PPO recommendations hadn't been implemented. PPO recommendations? Prison and Probation Ombudsman, okay. the, the body that inspects, uh, investigates uh, all deaths in prisons. Uh, and I can't see any excuse for not doing this. But what we see time and again in the same prisons, the same failures leading to um, f further deaths and tragedies, they are preventable, they're avoidable, but there's a great lack of accountability. And I think that there really needs to be a, a review of, all, of how this is done. The, the linkages between the police, the prison service, the coroner, the PPO, uh, and the Director of Public Prosecutions, the CPS, to make sure that all this is joined up properly. Now, in, in the police service, you know, where I spent over 30 years of my life, over, over the last few decades, there's been an enormous decrease in the incidence of deaths in custody for a number of reasons, but including accountability, robust investigation, and so on. That, I think that needs to be replicated in the prison service. Can you think of any other organisation or service where there is this lack of accountability? Because, of course, we know that lack of accountability anywhere is, A, not good, but B, in many situations, just downright dangerous. And, of course, this is what we're talking about. So, you know, a bad day in the office and the lack of accountability leads to deaths. And, and of course, if things don't change, it's just perpetuated. But is there something about the fact that because it's behind the wall and it's a sort of fairly secret world that people don't know about... I would argue that the ministers sort of, you know, we don't get the action we'd like to see, actually, in my view, from ministers. How, how can this go on? How is it allowed well, to I go on? I don't think it should be allowed to go on, no. quite frankly. Again, looking back to my, my background, 
uh, and uh, other organizations as well, very often something dramatic, all too often tragic, has to happen before fundamental change occurs. But doesn't that happen often in the prison system? What I mean, well, you know, you've got riots, you've got people cutting themselves, you've got people stringing themselves up, killing themselves, you've got children killing themselves, you've got babies being born in prison who die. Like, what has to happen? Yes, but while, while there's, in my view, a lack of individual accountability for many of these tragedies, um, there's not the impetus to make things happen. Now, look back over the prison service over the last few decades. What brought about fundamental change? Escapes from the high security estate when terrorists escaped from Whitemoor. That brought about you know, the Woodcock report and so on and so forth. That brought about significant change. Um, my predecessor, Stephen Tumin and his work around slopping out and so on, that brought about a fundamental change, although there is still sort of de facto slopping out in Absolutely. some places going on. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> but um, uh, my fear is it will, t it will take, in, in this, on the subject of self-inflicted deaths and repeated failures, someone to be prosecuted because otherwise it doesn't seem it, the importance of this and the accountability that should be there doesn't seem to be cutting through you know in my in my background in the policing you could you could argue that the the lawrence inquiry mcpherson inquiry brought about fundamental cultural change and i happen to believe that you change culture by changing behavior rather than the other way around putting words on the wall on posters um, exhorting people to behave differently. My experience doesn't really work. If you want to change culture, you, you enforce behavioral change. And my fear is that that potentially is the only way to bring about fundamental cultural change within the prison service. And where does the mis ministerial role sort of merge with the sort of Ministry of Justice civil service role? Because there's sort of power and influence in different areas. And I suppose there's different ways that can sort of come down in order to affect change on such a grand scale that we're talking about from, you know, the Houses of Parliament to the wings of our prisons. Um, the Justice Secretary is at the top of the tree, right? Uh, well, yes. Uh, it's been interesting. In the last four years, as uh, you know, I said, I've worked with five prisons ministers. Um, sadly, not many of them have been there for very long. But one who was there for a while and really tried to bring about some change was Rory Stewart. And he decided to be interventionist. And he really said, right, let's, let's get into some basics here. Let's look at decency, cleanliness, drugs, all those things. And he started intervening in a way that not many ministers do. He was getting involved to an extent in the operational side of things. Now, that drew enormous criticism from some quarters. It's not the job of the minister to run the prison service. Well, my view, I mean, Rory Stewart's more than capable of speaking for himself, but he was doing it because he couldn't see anybody else doing it. And, I, and I'm sure there's a transition period, isn't it? If you're going to go from sort of an area which is sort of slightly chaotic and the lines of accountability aren't sort of really there, then probably the minister's role in the interim period does have to be slightly more hands-on if you're trying to change something. And then, yes, hopefully when you're in better shape, um, a bit like the sort of Scandinavian countries, the ministers don't get involved at all. They say to their civil servants, run the prison system. It's your job. You're the experts. And it's not our job. It's our job to sort of set the tone and set the strategy, set the direction. But other than that, we're ministers and we shouldn't be getting involved in your job well you could see you can easily make that case and say yes ministers should be there to set policy and um, and deal with the political side of things and make sure that the operational side is supported with the right resources and the right policies and so on and so forth um, 
But I, I think certainly in Rory Stewart's case, he felt that he had to make some interventions on the operational side because it simply wasn't happening. And Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and I do agree with you. I wasn't sort of disagreeing. I was sort of, no. um, yeah, sort of saying with those criticisms, which I heard as well. Um, and as well as a lot of people actually talking very highly of Rory um, and that you don't often get that with sort of prisons ministers. But, um, but I agree. I think we're in a period where we need as many people helping as we can. It needs to be a confident and well-led service in it, because it's a really difficult job. I don't underestimate how difficult it is. And some of these uh, prisons are really complicated places to, to run. I have a huge amount of admiration for uh, most of the governors and teams I see in the field working in these establishments. Sometimes I feel sorry for governors because they're asked to run very complicated places and they haven't been trained or equipped to do it. Absolutely. And they need all the support they can get. Uh, and what they need is support around leadership style, management, strategic thinking, and perhaps less of the uh, comply with our policy and less of being weighed down with endless demands for data. The number of governors who say to me that the burden that they feel from above in terms of having to supply information and data all the time to meet the various levels of assurance that the prison service has, that, that, that's a real burden for them. What are your views on the youth estate now? So the secure training centres and the youth offenders institutes, um, what does the sort of landscape look like in general for them? And is it going in the right direction? Uh, the simple answer is no, it's not going in the right direction. It's a bit of a roller coaster. We occasionally see some really good outcomes, uh, th usually through inspired local leadership uh, in the YOIs. Um, but they tend to go up and down, you know, like yo-yos, uh, in, in terms of their performance. It, it's too inconsistent. There are only five YOIs now. I fail to see how it is that there is not more consistency and why some of them um, seem to consistently and persistently um, give very poor outcomes. You'll be aware of the fact that uh, this year, for the first time, we issued an urgent notification around Feltham, Feltham A. Um, it was just an extraordinarily depressing, gloomy experience. I went there and I saw boys aged 15, 16, 17, who were not socialized in any recognizable way. They couldn't engage, uh, trying to get eye contact, was very difficult. Um, they were spending inordinate amounts of time locked in their cells. They weren't getting to healthcare. They weren't getting to education. Um, the whole place had, be, had gone into a negative spiral. Uh, yes, there'd been a lot of violence there uh, and staff had been attacked. And of course, that's completely unacceptable. But instead of looking at ways, constructive ways to manage behavior, it had just gone into a repressive cycle. Uh, which we've seen at that place before, and it's, it's been tried year after year after year and failed. And that was extraordinarily depressing um, to see that. But in other places, we've seen good models of behavior, behavior management um, uh, where actually the boys can engage. And only a couple of weeks ago, I was in another YOI, which we haven't published the report yet, so I won't say where it was. Mm. But it was the complete opposite of what I've seen at Felton. The boys wanted to speak talk about their time none of them were locked up during the day they were all out doing constructive purposeful things uh, it, it just couldn't have been more of a mirror image yeah what I'm thinking about is the fact that you know talking about accountability so if you take sort of Feltame in that inspection and it's just terrible and it's right someone needs to be accountable it's then very difficult to say to staff or the governor it's sort of your fault, isn't it, in a, in a way? And I'm not saying that that's what you're sort of advocating at all, but it's like the system has been so under-resourced, so unloved, so 
disrespected, I would say, that how could you then throw the book at the governor? Because the governor might say, what on earth am I meant to do? I've got no staff, I've got no money, I don't have ministers that understand my job, I don't have ministers that sort of care for what we do here, should these children even be in prison? So therefore, where would the accountability be? Well, I certainly wouldn't throw the book at the governor in the case of Felton. It's just look at the last 18 months history. In January 2018, we inspected Felton and it was not a bad place. They'd had a governor who had been there for some time and he had done some good work and things were beginning to improve. But in the introduction to that report, I said, look, yeah, yes, there's been some progress, but this could well be fragile. And so there needs to be consistent, focused leadership here. What happened? Um, for some unknown reason, the prison service decided to leave Felton without a government, a governor for five months oh, wow. during 2018. And inevitably what happened? We inspect YOIs once a year because of the particular vulnerabilities there. So we went back in January this year. Uh, a new governor had by then been appointed, but she was quite new in post and hadn't had a chance to really make a difference at that stage. And things were heading in the wrong direction. So we warned about that. Then during the course of the spring of this year, 2019, um, we began to get some very worrying information about what was happening there. So I brought forward the next scheduled inspection by about six months and we went back in July and what we found was just awful. So that's what prompted the urgent notification. Uh, I hope that um, that has focused some minds uh, and that um, so some improvements will be made. They put a cap on taking any new boys in there but that's now been released i hope that's not premature i hope the conditions are now such that they can deal with uh, these boys uh, respectfully and decently but having them locked up for inordinate amounts of time i mean i've had two of my own boys you know i know what teenage lads need mm. i know any teenager needs you know plenty of fresh air exercise decent food and all the rest of it yeah. and they're simply not getting it now i'm not saying for a moment these boys shouldn't be there because some of them uh, very dangerous very dangerous and they've committed very very serious crimes but they're not going to improve uh, in terms of their attitudes or their potential for further harm if they're not treated properly absolutely not and i often reflect when i'm going into a, a prison the name her majesty's prison and probation service and i sort of think and i've said this before you know how proud would her majesty be to know that there's young children locked up in sort of leaking dirty cells not being allowed out you know is this the great british justice system that people around the world look to indeed and i know anecdote is, is a very dangerous thing and uh, it's something I try not to engage in when it comes to our reports too much. We look for solid evidence. But just by way of anecdote and how there's a degree of dysfunction about what's happening in many of our establishments. The other day, I, I, on a Sunday, I was driving to Heathrow Airport to pick up a family member and I was a bit early so I, and I had to go past Felton in order to get there. So I swung into the car park on a Sunday morning and there's hardly a single car there which told me, and it's normally it's absolutely packed, dozens if not hundreds of cars in there. That told me that there's hardly any staff on duty at a weekend, which explains to an extent why it is that regimes at such places are much more restrictive at the weekends and prisoners spend far longer locked up at weekends than they do during the working week. Now you'd think in any, if you're preparing someone for life in the community, you work during the week and then things ease off a bit at the weekend. This is the other way around. Mm. 
it's a complete opposite of what you might expect in a community. Absolutely. And it's almost like the general public and the debate hasn't quite caught up with the fact that if you are the lock them up, throw away the key, well, you know, they've stabbed someone, they've killed someone, so therefore, quite frankly, they should go to prison. It's like people don't understand that all these people are coming out. Yes. Bar very few of them. So we are all united in the fact that we want people to come out in better shape. The government has a duty to make sure they come out in a better shape. But the government has a duty to make sure that the staff and governors and anyone who's working in a prison has the tools to be able to make that happen. And they're simply not doing that at the minute. Well, that's absolutely right. And uh, I'm frequently accused of being able to sort of ruin any social gathering or dinner party by <laughs> the gloom and doom I bring. You and me both. But if you want to feel really gloomy about things, go to Feltham in the morning when boys are being released. And I've done that and I've watched it. I remember once standing there uh, as the boys were coming out. There are two um, huge four-wheel drive BMW X5s, all the, all, all the gizmos, um, I don't know, 70, 80,000 pounds worth of car. Uh, average age of the two or three lads in each one, about 19. Uh, bottles of champagne on the ground and huge loud music booming out. And when the boys come out, are they going to turn left and go to the job centre? Mm. Or are they going to get straight back into those cars and go back where they came from, into the sort of environment that got them into Feltham in the first place? Mm, there's no parents there to pick them up. There's nobody to pick them up. And in terms of support through the gate back into the community, it's just simply lacking. You know, the, the, and then the boys themselves say, very often when you speak to them, when I go back, I'll be back straight into what I was doing before whether it's drug dealing or whatever aspect of gang culture it was that uh, got them into trouble. What about the women's prisons, um, quickly? Because obviously there's only roughly 4,000 women in prison, roughly 81,000 men, so they only make up about 4% of the prison population in its entirety. And there's obviously a huge debate about the fact that it would be much better if um, women who are in on short sentences and predominantly acquisitive crime, um, that they are and would be better dealt with in the community if only the services existed. And of course, you've got the brilliant network of women's centres, but there's not enough funding for them to do their job properly, even though the government admitted in their female offender strategy that that's the way forward. We were inviting me to go down to some, in some very controversial routes. I never get involved in the numbers debate. I, I, I certainly say people need to be held in conditions which are not overcrowded and so on and so forth. But in terms of how many people should be in prison, that's a matter of political judgment, sentencing policy and so on. That's not the route I go down. I just say they should be held safely, securely, decently and in a, in a way that could help their... Um, rehabilitation in due course. But in terms of women's prisons, generally they inspect better than men's prisons. Um, we're looking at the what we call our expectations, the standards we set for women's prisons, because my fear is that we've based them on largely on, on, on men's standards in the mm. past. And so we look at a women's prison and say, uh, is, is it safe? Well, yes, it's, it's likely to be. In comparison with a men's prison, there's going to be less violence between prisoners. Um, but are they actually safer when you look at the levels of self-harm in the women's estate? You know, five times the rate uh, in men's prisons. Uh, so I, I think we need to sort of reconfigure our expectations around what should be happening in the women's estate. We're going through that process at the moment, and we know you've contributed. Thank you very much indeed Absolute for pleasure. that. <laughs> and um, I hope we'll come up with something which is more specifically geared towards women. 
Uh, and women's prisons themselves very often they've been men's prisons in the past absolutely uh, quite often women um, have been issued men's clothes to wear oh yeah you all, know and all, having all sat on the advisory board for female offenders you know we used to make the point that you know the system is predominantly run by men for men and it was sort of built for men and that's not to um, try and get people to be defensive it's just true yes um, but some people don't like the truth and as you say there's a level of defensiveness that you come up against when you're trying to state a fact in the system is um, it's difficult to sort of grapple with sometimes because I think, again, we're all united in the fact we want a more efficient system, a more safe system. Certainly for me, a, a smaller system with less prisons and less people in it. But we all want the same thing. And actually being defensive and not being open to sort of working out how we can combat some of these problems isn't very sort of helpful. It's not. Um, but there are some very good things happening yes, in the women's prisons. While we're talking about women's prisons, let's think, for instance, about Ascombe Grange, um, a women's open prison. Uh, and it always inspects well. It inspected well a few years ago, in our terms, four fours, which is four goods, as good as you can get in, in inspection terms. We went back this year to inspect again, and yet again, it was top grades in every category. But what I found particularly rewarding to see was that they hadn't just been complacent and sat on their laurels and done more of the same, which got them the good grades a few years before. They'd done new things, mm. innovation, and, and, and uh, worked very hard to do new and different things. And that was really great to see. Is that not the prison that has constantly um, got hanging over its head the fact that it might be closed? That's exactly the point I was going to all make. Right, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 not at all. And I've put it in the in the report. You know, it, it is ridiculous that for years now, five, six years, I've lost count. Uh, they have been, uh, there's been a Damocles sword hanging over them. Are we going to close or not? Which is terrible for the staff. Of course it is. Uh, of course it is. It's appalling. There needs to be some clarity brought to that. But that, that's a good jail. So back to the goods. Other things that the service do well. There's a lot of good stuff happening at the local level. There really is. And it's, it's almost invidious to pick out individual places. But mm. let's think of a couple of examples. Food. Now, food is a, a really basic thing in people's health, their sense of well-being, so on and so forth. Many people in prison have never had access to a decent diet, so on. And I've seen that particularly in YOIs. You see boys there who just are not thriving. But it is possible. Our surveys, which we conduct, one of the things we ask is about, you know, what do you think about the food? Uh, Brixton, uh, recently, when we inspected there, and it's nothing to do with the Clink restaurant. <laughs> <let's>, <laughs> but thank you for the plan. No, no, no. <laughs> this is the food which is uh, in consumed kitchen. by in, my, in the main kitchen. Yeah. Um, around about 90%, coming up for 90% of the prisoners said, this is really good food here. So, right. so I you know, we said, well, what's all this about? And what they've got is a brilliant catering manager who's flexible. And he looks at the weather forecast, for instance, and says, oh, it's going to be cold today. I'll have an, an extra hot option. And uh, and so on. Uh, so I was at another jail shortly after we'd been there where about 20% of the prisoners said that the food was any good. Um, and it was just awful, ghastly slop. And you know, so I'm now pointing uh, governors whenever we get very bad reports on food. To, to Brixton. I'm sure the governor of Brixton is not thanking me for that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it can be done. And what I find even worse about this is sometimes I'll, I'll find a catering manager and say, uh, what's your per capita spend? And they'll proudly say, oh, I've got below the two pounds, you know, down to 180, 190. Why? What's, what's to be proud about there? It's only two pounds and four pence anyway. 
the allocation. You should be looking to raise it, yeah. not not lower it. And do you think that um, a particularly well-functioning good prison um, has a lot to do with the different charities and organisations that are working within it, or is that more of a problem? Than yes, I, I think that the, the role of the third sector charities of all kinds is vastly uh, uh, underplayed in many ways. Mm. I, I think it's huge. The, the, the charitable instinct and the, the, the sheer volume of stuff uh, that's done, but it's partnerships of all kinds. I mean, in terms of what examples of a place that's done well, well, Liverpool I keep returning to because it is a prison that was in a desperate place. It's now much, much better. It's a place that's transformed. And what's transformed that? Inspirational leadership from the governor, Pierre Sinner. Yes, some uh, people, you know, several hundred prisoners have been taken off the roll. Uh, and money's been spent on trying to refurbish the place. There are hardly any windows left in the jail when we inspected it two years ago. But it is transformed. It's clean. They've even got rid of the rats. The dysfunctional central contract to, to deal with rodent infestation wasn't working, so they got the local liver, liver got rid of that contract, got the Liverpudlian rat catcher out who's yeah. done the job, and there are now no rats in the jail. But most importantly, there are external partnerships as well. And so at Liverpool, hardly anybody is now released homeless. And why is that? It's because there's a very good partnership with the local authority. The local authority regard Liverpool Jail as part of the community, which I think is a really constructive thing. And they say, these are people who are going to come out back into our community. So we've got to give them as good a chance as we can. And that's clearly the governor, right, that's been sort of behind that because that was... The governor's done an awful lot. Yeah. Now, there are cynics who say, oh, if you take 500 off the roll and throw money out of jail, um, then it's bound to get better. Well, but... of course things have to be done, right? Well, yes, it's not you... just one silver bullet, I'm but you, sure. But you need leadership. Yeah. And, and if, you go, if you leadership. go to that prison, what you see there and what I saw when we were there a couple of months ago is that there's a really solid, unified team driving that forward. So... In Liverpool, outcomes, great. Not many people are being released homeless. But if you go to a, a Bristol prison, for instance, where we inspected earlier this year, about 46% of prisoners are being released homeless. Why is that? Again, it's because the, the, the lack of partnership working to bring about better outcomes in terms of accommodation. So this variation is what we should all be learning from. And I think it's the variation that the prison service should be looking to understand champion good practice and not just live on re reams of data which take you nowhere mm. so the end of your tenure is sort of in sight even if it's been extended <laughs> a couple of times so um do you think you'll look back and um or are you already sort of looking back thinking you know i've made a difference i've done what i came into this job to do or do you do you think you'll remain in this sort of sector banging the drum or how do you feel about <laughs> I, retirement, it's, it's, if it's I can a, call it that? It's a very temp tempting invitation to be pompous, which <laughs> if you don't mind, I, I won't fall for. Um, have I made a difference? I hope so. It, I hope the bringing in the urgent notification process, the independent reviews of, pro, uh, of progress, and also being a pretty consistent nuisance publicly because all we have is our the voice of the inspectorate we don't have any powers we don't seek them but we 
do have access to the, the media. The fact that I can say exactly what I like, when I like, nobody tells me what I can put in my reports, nobody says when they can be published. Uh, so that freedom is absolutely vital. Uh, so I hope that I've managed to raise the profile of the problem. I haven't been able to solve it, of course not. That's for those who run the prison service to, to solve. But it would be nice to think that by exposing some of the things that are needlessly happening, it's the preventable harm that is being caused within the custodial world. Um, by exposing that, I'd hope we might have been able to make some contribution to some sort of impetus to actually uh, drive lasting and important change. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real honour talking to you and, and totally fascinating. And I think, you know, it's so important for this podcast to be exploring roles and positions such as yours, because I think there's a real misunderstanding out there. Um, and yes, we don't often hear the voice of the person inside prison, but we often don't hear the voice of people like you who are doing such in such an incredible job in such a challenging place. So thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. And uh, it'd be wrong for me to sign off without paying tribute to my team, who are a mixed uh, economy, to put it like that. Some have worked in prisons, some have worked in the third sector, some have worked in, 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 in children's uh, safeguarding, some have been probation officers, some are brilliant at writing, but they're all co absolutely committed. I couldn't do a single thing without, I don't know anything about prisons, they know lots and lots and lots. Um, but I do know a lot about evidence. So yeah. <laughs> between us, we somehow put together something exactly. that, that I, hope no team. I hope it's a a decent product that we we put out brilliant well thank you so much and good luck for the next chapter thank you thank you very much links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below if you enjoyed listening we would love it if you would subscribe also rate review and best of all share this episode justice is co-produced for one small thing by the london podcast company and pencil agency Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.